0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. And So I want you to hear the Bible being read as Sermon 1, and then what I'm going to say are kind of like footnotes to the actual sermon itself, but... These, these texts, especially when you put them next to each other like this, they preach. And so this is going to be the best thing you hear for the rest of the day. I promise you. We're going to talk about the movie Frozen in a minute. So it's only going to go downhill hard. This is the best part. Isaiah 58, uh, 1 through 12 first. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, Encouraging. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. So this is one of those sermons. Like God is saying, listen, this isn't friends and family Sunday, Israel. This is, I'm going to beat you up Sunday. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Sounds good so far. Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. I want you to remember that phrase. God says, Fasting like this will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, like you're fasting and so you should have extra bread, because you're not eating it, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What's the first thing Adam and Eve did? Mm. Maybe we don't like to fast because we like food or maybe we don't like to fast because we actually see ourselves when we do. You know how many times I walk over the refrigerator and open it when I fast? And I realize, my God, how many times do I, I must come into the kitchen. I might be in the kitchen more than my own bedroom. Like that's, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. How many know that we just prayed for some young? They're going to be ancient ruins one day, and if they should become ruins, we want them to be rebuilt? I hope so. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That is who God is saying we are called to be, the repairer of the breach, and a restorer of streets to dwell in. 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I declared to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Who is? You are. Is Jesus also the light of the world? But so are you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that in every church in our area, people would be coming into your house hungry for a revelation of Jesus, and they would leave like a cascading river of life mingled with fire for the life of the world. In your holy, precious name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. We're in a series called Valuable. We are not just talking about how to have values. But to how to be able to value people. The statement we made last week is Salem is not a church that holds stances tightly while holding those people who don't follow those stances loosely. If we hold stances tightly, and we do, it's so that we can love people appropriately. People won't come, people won't see Jesus because of what we avoid. What we avoid shows that we've been walking with Jesus. They won't see Jesus because we avoid stuff. We avoid stuff because we've been moved by the heart of God and we're being made new, as Elder Paul said. That's for us, and it's to free us to be able to love other people well and freely. Last week, we said that true freedom is being able to offer yourself to somebody, your best self, and not be concerned about the worthiness of that person. I'm giving you my best because Jesus has given me his best. And that is the only thing that should stand. Amen? So I'm a bad parent. I'm going to do this at the beginning. Stuart, that was mean. He said amen. I am a bad parent. And let me tell you, I, I have heard in my life in church, I've been to four churches in my life and. Back in the day, man, we said some crazy stuff as Christians. And I heard people say, I'm going to follow the rules and my kids are going to be right. That's where that emoji face came from. (laughs) That's exactly where that face face happened then. We just didn't have the technology to put it out there. But somebody said, he's like, I'm following biblical principles and my kids aren't going to be like other people's kids. Even like as a young person, I'm like, dear God, I pray for this person because my parents did a really good job and I'm the worst like, wow. No, I'm, I'm a bad parent, and, and besides the seriousness of that statement, um, surprise, surprise, I know when you hear me and look at me and stuff, you're like, wow, he must be perfect, but I'm not. I'm, I'm definitely rough. Um, I have started listening closely to Sophia, who performs Frozen for us on a nightly basis, and to tell you the truth, if I hear the song one more time, I might just die, like, I'm beginning to know what a heart attack feels like because there's a point, And, like, she's not here right now. Like, Sophia, she can sing a little, but she, like, wouldn't make it to Hollywood if she was on American Idol. You know what I mean? Like, they'd be like, wow, you'd be really good, like, you know, on karaoke night. Like, that kind of thing. And she sings it. And, like, high notes for her are not high notes. They're just yelling louder, right? And so finally one day we're in the car and we're driving And she's like, I want to listen to Frozen. So Frozen 1 soundtrack came on, and the song Let It Go came on. Oh, my God. And I heard it. And I actually heard the second verse. So I'm going to preach this whole sermon today, those texts that we just read, from this concept that I realized Elsa is kind of like a postmodern feminist. And we're going to talk about it for a minute but Ian, can you just freeze our title real fast just so that we have like the whole, that was dope, right? <laughs> now, I remember around Christmas time, I, I heard people's beloved Christmas song, uh, this uh, Last Christmas, This Christmas, whatever it's called. Since that day, all of you in this room have essentially texted me videos of you singing that song, so I'm glad to hear that everyone listens freely to the pastor of the church. There's no more spiritual authority anymore, Elder Paul. It's all gone. Everyone, no. And then, so, but I want you to hear this. I'm going to play this one time. I'm going to put my head down while it's on. I want you to read the lyrics. I want you to hear it. I'm going to try to not run out of the room because I've heard this too many times, but there's actually something very interesting in the second verse, and this is what the enemy does. He doesn't put it in the first verse because we all know the first verse. He puts it in the second verse when you're already kind of like out the door ready to shoot yourself for hearing the song again. He throws it in the second verse and I actually heard Sophia sing these words and it scared me to death. Listen. It's funny how some distance makes it. No right, no wrong, no rules for you. Get in your room right now. (laughs) I'm going to spank you. Why? I don't know. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Can we talk about this for a minute, please? That is what Tim Keller would call postmodern freedom. It's what we realize is in this haze and polluted culture that how you feel is what's right for you until somebody feels that they disagree with your freedom and then you can have freedom but they're not allowed to anymore we live in a hyper-focused world where even when it comes to something like homosexual marriage that if you we can sit here like here and i'm just going to be very real with you in this church i It's so funny what happens. I sat down with Jacqueline one week, and a family came in and said, you know what? You guys are just a little bit too Republican for us. We're like, well, we never said anything like that. That same week, look at the person next to you and say that same week, another couple sat with us and said, we're way too Democrat for them. I'm not lying. There are people here who think that my morality stances are way too loose, but there are people out that don't go here that think I'm a bigot. And it's, please pray for me, number one. Like, it's, it's very difficult and mind-warping to realize that you live in this world and you see it in the movie Frozen, where at the beginning of the movie, she's got this power that she doesn't know how to handle, and so her parents make her stay in a small room, They make her wear gloves. They say, conceal, don't feel. And she's not allowed to leave this tiny little space and environment. And that's a way for them to keep her safe from misusing her freedom. That's called legalism and moralism. If I keep you away from everything that's bad, you won't hurt yourself and you won't hurt anybody. What inevitably happens in that person is that they become free and then sing dumb lyrics like no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. But if there's no right and no wrong, you're anything but free because that means other people have no right and wrong on how they respond to you and can actually hurt you really bad. If there are no rules... That's good in your mind when you think it, but that means I can do whatever I want to your freedom, and you can't tell me I'm wrong because no right, no wrong, no rules for me either. Now I'm going to be free. Well, no, I'm free. Now we're going to fight to see who's the most free, and what we end up with is back here to legalism again. There's these poles that exist where there's strict, mindless, demonic moralism that says stay away from everything and you'll be right with God. And then there's this, no, 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 Jesus, he who the sun sets free is, but not that kind of free. But it's expressed like it's that kind of freedom. And so I'll date how I want, and I'll live with who I want, and I'll drink how I want, and I'll eat how I want, and I'll be the gender that I want, and I'll do all of these things that I want, and it's turning into utter and complete chaos, and that's all I'm going to say on the matter for now. Now you've heard me say... That people over here can't just be told they're wrong because it's a worldview. It's been taught. They need compassion. They need understanding. They can't be rejected. They can't be told you're hurting people. The knots need to untie slowly, and the people of God need to be robust and mature enough to be able to do that. I should have my phone so I could count my steps. These people, A, are reacting to those people over correction, but they can't be told you're wrong to their face either. They need the people of God to be robust enough to be here and be able to reach compassionately here and to reach compassionately here. Now, I want to share something with you in this vein that has, in all of my formation to become a priest, this one line from one book was worth all the cost and all the time and all the effort. Gordon Lathrop, a Lutheran pastor, said, Jesus hangs on the cross between two people that he loves. One wrestling with his faith, the other silent and mocking. And he says that Jesus hangs in the middle and stays in the middle. And he is torn each way by each one as he's also trying to pull each one into himself. And he says this, and this is the part that it means the world to me, this phrase. It's, it's ministered to my life. It's like my top three go-to, God help me remember this, every day. He said, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was writ from top to bottom. And the tearing exposed the most holy place. And he said, the most holy place in any priest and in any person, and in any church is only seen when they allow themselves to be pulled in the directions of each pole, but stay true to the fullness that they're called to live in. And when that tears you, that's when people see the holy place exposed in you. But if we get pulled all the way over to here, there's no tearing. If we get pulled all the way over to here, there's no tearing. But if we stay here, this is called intercession, This tearing when you love somebody, but you have to let go of them a little bit. This tearing when you love somebody, and they say they love Jesus, but they're living like they've never met him before. And you are, how do I love, and how do I not condone, and how do I say you're hurting people, and how do I say you're hurting yourself, but I also don't want to offend? All of that stuff. There's been different church movements that teach you how to not feel the feelings that are happening in those moments. How do I, is my, have you ever had this problem? Is my silence condoning? Like if I, if I say something, we're gonna get into a fight. If I don't say something, they're gonna think that they're right. And then over here, God, you say one thing and these gatekeepers are gonna have all of their answers. Like they got a verse for that over here. Christian moralists are waiting for you to say something. They want you to, please. I dare you to say something about my marriage in the name of Jesus. I want to minister to you once you say something, right? They're waiting for it. And over here, it's just, just let's, let's not talk about anything too crazy. Let's just, let's just be who we are. And you're here and both of these worlds seem right at times. And you're saying, how do I do this? That's the life of Jesus in a sentence. I'm looking at you, Pharisees, and I'm weeping that you won't recognize the time of your visitation. It's the torn life that real intercession comes out of. It's the torn life, the life that refuses to be pulled to any of these extremes, but holds in tension the unresolved of the two. So there's no conceal, don't feel, and there's no go ahead and feel anything you want. There's a reality in the middle, and honestly, I have to say the movie gets it right. Dory, where's Doreen? Just because Doreen's uh, not doing this for her like third grade class, she's like teaching them all the ways of like the devil at school. But I have to say, just because I know, I know how faithful and true you are. So at the end, Elsa actually gets it right. She starts with conceal, don't feel. Then some reason she goes over here and like most people who react to that, builds her own castle and becomes the queen of her own castle. Girl, you don't have any followers. You're not the queen of anything. No one's in it. Do you know how much that preaches though? No one's in it, but you feel like the queen because no one's saying to you, you might be wrong. Oh my God. Anyway, at the end of the movie, and Ian actually pointed this out to me because this is Ian's spirituality. Ian's got a frozen spirituality. Ian said, wait, what Elsa did with Olaf at the end, isn't that exactly right? She used some of that power to give enough flurry to the snowman so he didn't melt. So it wasn't destroying people with your ice, and it wasn't building your own castle with it, it was an ice skating rink at the end. Just enough where we can all have life. Just enough where the snowman doesn't melt, but we can all still live in summer. That's what our morality is meant to be. It's not meant to be shards of ice being shot at people or our own autonomous lifestyle thinking that it's spiritual. It should create the ability to enjoy That is the gospel according to Frozen. (laughs) Not bad. But now I have to preach a sermon. Jesus, God, is saying to Israel, you're either fasting and following all the rules, or like three chapters later and before, you're sleeping with everybody, like I told you not to. You're either fasting or entirely indulging. But you're not expressing God's life as a gift to the people you're at. Because you're either fasting from people or you're indulging in them. But you're not offering them God's life. You're not offering them God's life. Walter Brueggemann said, Israel had a mouthing faith. A faith that they said. But not a faith that they embodied. They either avoided conceal, don't feel or indulged, made their own castle that wasn't the temple. This really does preach frozen. I should watch it. Is there a part two I heard? Yeah? I'm only kidding. I know there's a part two. Walter Brueggemann calls it the morality of the mouth. Food, drink, words, and who we kiss. Intimacy. And he said we can treat those things... Like they're things to be avoided and have systems around them that take all romance and enjoyment out of any of it. Or they become God's gifts for us to do whatever we want to. And as long as we're living and using the gift, then it's okay. But that's really called lust. That's not love. And so we have to ask ourselves, before we even talk about what stances should we have, we need to ask ourselves, and this is me saying to us, If you take a ledger of how you associate with food. If you take a ledger with how you associate with words when you're not paying attention to what you're saying. The words that just flow from your subconscious. If you take a ledger of how you associate with drink. Do you treat people like if they have any alcohol, they're the worst? Or do you act like if you woke up alive the next morning then what you did last night wasn't so bad? If you say constantly, I was only buzzed, every time you drink, you're doing something wrong. Let me just tell you that right now. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm only buzzed. No. You've done something wrong. When it comes to food... When it comes to drink, specifically, and you say, well, why are you picking these two? Because the entire world was destroyed because people mishandled food. Genesis chapter 3, ring a bell? And the entire world is put back together in a meal that Jesus gave us. Bread and juice, right? So I think it's fair to talk about food and drink as being vital. Jesus calls himself true food and true drink, so we would do well. This is not legalism. This is talking about the life of Jesus and what he embodies, to talk about food and drink. And if you associate with food and drink in a way where you are more yourself when you're indulging in them than when you're not, you're doing something wrong. I'm not comfortable until I have a drink and then I can be social. Let's meet and talk. Because that really isn't good. We all say it's, it's really not good. <sighs> Like I think, even in Frozen, during if I'm, you're the expert. If uh, isn't there a point where she's talking about how nervous uh, her sister Anna is talking about how nervous she would be if she starts talking to a guy and she says, "I want to stuff some chocolate in my face." Right? I'm so nervous to talk to him. I need to eat. That's not good. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I'll stand here the whole time. I have no shame anymore. Is not awkward at all. This is true. Intimacy, marriage, dating, they're for other people as much as they're for you. It's not an issue of, well, we're living together and we're not married and da-da-da. It's not an issue like that that in and of itself is the thing that's wrong. The thing that's wrong is it doesn't express the kind of God who only gives himself fully to us when he's already completely and fully committed to us. We've changed. Let me tell you, we're about, if, if this is strict moralism and this is, like, open freedom, we're about here. <laughs> right? Maybe about here. I watched The People versus O.J. Simpson on Netflix, And what I thought was really interesting is whenever a witness had something to say that was good, they discredited the witness. They do this in every court case, right? They discredit the witness because if their lifestyle can be seen to be really bad, then their witness to even something they saw can be discredited. That's why we have to live right. Our morality doesn't get us closer to God, and our morality doesn't get other people closer to God. Our morality validates what we say. Okay, listen, listen, you, you all preach on a Sunday. Watch this. I'll go back to the Bible again, just in case you all think I'm going off on crazy train someplace. James says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Listen to this. But if you have bitter jealousy, that's not anybody here, and selfish ambition, none of us, in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly. Listen, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's an earthly wisdom. It's an unspiritual wisdom. It's a demonic wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Watch this. But the wisdom from above, there is wisdom that is wise, and it's a wisdom that isn't from God. Just because it's wise, just because it makes sense, just because it seems right, doesn't mean it's the kind of wise and sense and right that is from God. There are two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom, along with us, has fallen as well. And it is so easy for us to say something makes sense. Over here or over here, it makes sense to avoid everything as a way of being good. It makes sense to experience everything as a way of being good. And both of those forms of wisdom are selfish ambition. This one is, I'm going to live right so that I don't burn in hell when I die, which is selfish. And this one is, I'm going to live right by getting all of the pleasures and stuff that I can get right now. Both of them are as arrogant as each other. Telling people that if they don't believe in Jesus, they'll burn in hell makes people want to believe in Jesus so they don't burn in hell, which means they're choosing Jesus for themselves. Jesus, watch how he stands in the middle. The rich young ruler comes to him. What do I lack? And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. And it says that Jesus loved him. And said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have. So here's Jesus, and he says to this person who's followed all the commandments, it's this guy. I've done everything right. I've concealed, don't field, whatever. Jacqueline's not here right now, so I could use all the broken English I want. And Jesus, it says, loved him and said, go sell all that you have. And the man leaves, and Jesus doesn't chase Because he offered him himself. But Jesus is going to stay on the ice skating rink. He's not going to chase him down into legalism and say that this is okay. He lets him leave. And as the man is walking away, this is perfect love we're talking about here. This isn't somebody who really had a best friend. This is perfect love watching one of his own creations leave. And he stays here. And it wants you to know that this is how he loved him. Well, there's a conventional wisdom that says, but that doesn't feel like love. If that's love, go get Him. But there's a heavenly wisdom in that it says sometimes loving somebody is letting them leave. Jesus finds the woman caught in the act of adultery, and he brings her to himself. And he forgives her. He essentially takes her punishment on himself And then when she stands up, he says, now go and sin no more. He doesn't say the way you were living was right. He just says, I'm not going to deal with it the way those people deal with it. They want to throw stones because they want to eliminate unrighteousness. Jesus is saying, I want to break into your unrighteousness and love you in the midst of it. I'm not saying go back to it and build your own castle. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. She's completely not free. And neither is he for that matter, the rich young ruler. They're both enslaved to the thing that they think is the good life, following all the rules, enslaved, doing anything you want, enslaved. And Jesus is healing both by drawing one to himself and by letting one walk away. But it takes a robust, mature Christian faith to live in that middle ground. And if you're looking for the way to do it, the way to do it is you have to tear. It has to tear you. There isn't. I, I literally said to uh, Dr. Green today, I said, Chris, I feel like pastoring is so immoral because all I do is bring up these great questions, but then I can't give an adequate answer for them. And it feels so wrong. It feels so wrong to say, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to be torn. Well, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure what that means. And Chris said that, that is being torn. It's the feeling of, I, can't, I love you, but I can't go over there with you. I love you. I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to get you, but we got to be going this way together. The prodigal father never leaves his estate. He runs to the end of it, but he didn't go to the pigsty. His love did. His love did, but he didn't. Salem, hear this. The younger brother in the pigsty knew he could go home. I'm going to go home and I'm going to be a servant. My father will let me do that. He knew that because the father's love went where the father's physical presence wasn't. He knew he could come home. So that speaks to the character of the father. The father knew how to stand here, but still let that person know, my love is with you and I'm here for you. But you know the phrase like, I'll be there for you. Here's what we need to be saying. I, my love will be there for you, but my body will be here for you. My love will be there for you, but my body is here for you. And when you stay over there, and when you stay over there, my love for you is there. I'll go on a rescue mission to there. I'll come find you there, but I'm bringing you to here. And if you won't go, it's going to tear me. And I'm not going to know what to do. And I'm not going to know how to handle it. But when I feel that tearing, just like when I feel the pangs of hunger from fasting, I'm going to get on my knees and weep for you. And that might be the best thing I could ever do for you, because that's what Jesus did for Jerusalem. Thank God, we were joking about this at dinner last night. Thank God the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And the second shortest verse in the Bible is not Jesus stopped weeping. I think he still does. Because I think we still tear him. Because as long as we are the way we are and he is who he is, he's always longing. I didn't say we crucify him again. His love. He wants, he yearns, he desires you, but he won't change who he is to get along with us. He'll impart who he is into us, but he won't change who he is for us. We can't change who we are for legalists or for relativists. We have to be who we are Yes, we need stances. Yes, Salem has them. Yes, we need to have our views on things. But yes, and and this is something um, one of my bishops says, have your stance. This goes for all of us. Have your stance on a thing. But listen, this is so good. Have your stance on a thing. But never imagine yourself executing that stance if you can't tie it to a face and to a situation. what's your view on alcohol? I have a view. But I can't imagine saying all of my view on that unless I'm looking at a person in a situation that is affected by it. And then, then I can say what my view really is. Because my view in a system is one thing, but my view in practice we, we glean from that system to then go into the case-by-case-by-case-by-case-by-case-by-case scenarios and handle them all differently because every one of you is different, and every one of you should be pastored very differently by me. Even if you were all doing the same thing wrong, and we were all sitting here talking about the same thing, nobody was tithing. Like, Why isn't anybody tithing? And you're all staring at me like, we are never giving another dollar to this church again. I wouldn't be able to stand up here and address it. I'm just picking tithing because it's safe, which you know you're preaching a dangerous sermon when tithing is safe. (laughs) (laughs) When that's the safe play, we're we're in deep waters. If all of you are doing the same thing wrong and I was asked to address it, what I would have to say is clear my schedule because I need to have a lot of one-on-one meetings because all of you would have to, it'd have to be handled differently. It would have to be handled, but differently. It would have to be handled, but differently. That's the key. Torn. Well, you told this person this. I did this to my parents all the time. You let Christy get away with this, not me. Why not me? Because they actually cared about us as people and not as a blanket statement called children. My parents loved me. I said loved. They still do. <laughs> they love me, me, not the idea of me. And so they treat me differently than my sisters. And we live in a world that acts like that's, that's not fair. It is the only thing that's fair is for people to see the you that you really are and handle it accordingly, not according to an impersonal, dehumanized system that always leads to isms that are never good. Moral ism, Racism. Genderism. Okay, we'll close now in a minute. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I want you to look at this definition of righteousness that he says. You got it up there, E? Yeah. There's two definitions of the word righteous. I want you to look at 1B. Integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, and acting. This person loves that definition. Right thinking, virtue, doing it right, staying away from drugs and cigarettes and sex and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) This person hates that. They want all them things. I don't necessarily smoke, but I should be able to if I want to. Yes, you should be able to give yourself cancer if you want to. That's fair for everybody. We should be able to have sex with whoever we want to because that's just something, well, it's probably not going to work out so well for you and all of them. Listen, I hope this is making somebody feel awkward because we're not all getting this right. So that's the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness, this one. Be virtuous. Be virtuous get it right. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, that's what? Here's what that means. The second definition of the word Jesus used when he said this in a narrow sense, which I just love that, but I'll, I'll refrain justice or the virtue, which gives each person his or her due. So righteousness means two things. It means living right, but it also means being the kind of person that brings rightness to somebody else's injustice. Your life should be the justice that fills up the lack of justice in somebody else's life. And that's what the Pharisees weren't doing. They were living right, but nobody was getting better because of their right living. No one was getting more right and isn't that God's plight to Israel in the Isaiah text you're fasting you're refraining you're saying you desire to seek me but the people that work for you they're not living a better life the homeless around you they're not they don't know you're here the hungry are still hungry the oppressed are still oppressed so honestly Israel i don't really care so much that you've been fasting Because when you're fasting, are you hungry? Yes, God, we're hungry. You know how that feels? Your neighbor feels like that every day, and you haven't done something about it. I want your fasting to not be an indulgence into everything, but I also don't want it to be an exodus and an alienation. I want it to be here. I want you to live right as a way of bringing life to other people, of showing them in your word, in your thoughts, in your deeds and how you execute life, the kind of God who is committed, the kind of God who forgives before he says, now let's talk about what happened. The kind of God who rescues, the kind of God who goes into the darkness and brings light, not avoids the darkness. If our righteousness isn't doing those things, God's going to say, I don't hear you when you call to me. Because I can only hear Jesus. And when you're not living like Jesus, I can't hear you because I can only hear him. This is what being the light of the world means. Being the light of the world means living new inside of the old, not apart from it, and not a part of it. Living new inside the old, not apart from it, not a part of it. New inside of the old. It's the word subversion. We are called to subvert the unrighteous culture. We're not called to join it. We're not called to bash the living daylights out of it. We're called to live new in it. To subvert it. Because Jesus didn't smash Rome to pieces. Jesus didn't join Rome either. He subverted Rome. He let Rome do its best, and he changed it from the inside out. This is what I love about our view of how God judges. God judges Rome in a way that doesn't remove Rome. How many have been to Rome? They're still here. Did you know that? Rome exists. It's in Turkey. I'm just kidding. He didn't remove Rome. He changed it. He doesn't kill his enemies. He destroys what's enemy in them by subverting them. The first one to confess him was one of his enemies. Kill him. Oh, my goodness. Truly, this man is the Son of God. You could say that Jesus destroyed that guy because he destroyed in him what made him enemy. I've been crucified with. It is no longer I who live. He's destroyed me. It's no longer I who live, but then this life I now live. I thought you just said you no longer live. He destroyed me so I can live. Tim Keller said, how can we pray that God would rid the world of evil and not rid the world of us? He's got to pull it apart. Let the wheat and the tares grow together, and then We can pull the tears. And what are the tears? Not people, the evil in us. Relativists, moralists, hurt people. They hurt people by destroying the person and saying they're so bad they're not worthy of love or worship or baptism or anything. And they destroy people by saying it's right to indulge in every toxicity that you can. The world needs us here, like Jesus on the cross, stretched and torn. And when we feel stretched and torn, let that tearing be the fasting pangs. Because here's what I want to say. Here's how good God is. He says, fasting like this, and I won't hear you. He's saying to them, I don't hear you. Does anybody see the irony? They're praying, and he comes and says, like me, like dumb dad standing outside at Sophia's door, Sophia, I can't hear you. Yes, you can. You're talking to me. He's saying to them, I can't hear you. I won't respond to you. But in order for him to let them know that he has to hear them and respond to them, this is the kind of God we serve where he inhabits his own absence and speaks into his own silence. He can't not talk to you. He can't not be there for you. Even when he's telling you, I don't hear you, he's saying it because he doesn't like what he hears. So he's still there telling you that, like we do with our young kids all the time. I can't hear you. and they're, Sophia finally like called me. Yes, you can. Good point. But that's how God is. He's saying, I can't hear you, but he's telling us he can't hear us because he hears us saying the wrong thing. We need to be that way for people. Somehow letting them know they need to change, but somehow letting them know that that change or not change doesn't affect me in their life let's stand to our feet. My goodness. Somebody tell me something good at the door today. No, I'm serious. I want to be honest with you. I I waited almost three years to start talking about this because I wanted to make sure we all know. I have a view on mercy that is extremely, extremely, almost infinitely generous, but it doesn't mean we get to be like frozen castle Elsa and get to say no right no wrong no rules for me I'm free because that is a life that leads only to destruction and it stinks and it's horrible but somehow we have to manage to show a ton of mercy but live in some kind of strict discipline life ourselves. It's just the balance that we have to strike, and it's not fun, and we're going to talk about this for years and years and years. And also, guess what? We're heading into Lent, everybody's favorite time of the year, where we're going to spend five weeks this year in Lent. Five weeks, Stuart. Five weeks of Lent talking about how we need to fast and repent. Who's excited about that? Don't clap. No, no, no. Don't even clap now. You could have clapped a 100 times today. Don't clap about that at all. Don't start clapping now. What I want us to do on February 26th is Ash Wednesday, and how we normally talk about Ash Wednesday is ashes are the palms that we waved the previous Palm Sunday, and then we burn them, and they turn to ash, and we put them on our head in the form of a cross to say that even our best efforts turn to ash. But I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a slightly different direction this year, and I think the Holy Spirit wants us to hear that it's actually our sin that turns to ash. Our sin turns into the cross. Our sin turns into ash. And so what I want you all to start thinking about now, we're going to fast during Lent. And I want you to think of one thing in your life that needs to be adjusted. And I want it to be a thing that if it got adjusted, you would be more hospitable to people. Something in your life that is keeping you from living your life as a gift It could be anger, it could be emotionalism, it could be lust, it could be poor financial handling, it could be any of those things, but I want you to draw the connection between whatever it is and how it's keeping us from being that life that can be fully offered to people. And on Ash Wednesday, next week we're going to have some cards, and I want you to write down what that is. Not your name, I just want you to write down what that is and what you're going to give up for Lent. In connection to wanting God to adjust that thing. So I'm going to write down something that if I could change it, my life would be more of a gift. And then I'm going to give up something that I'm going to fast for Lent that's going to for 40 days remind me that the Holy Spirit is working on me in that area. And I don't want to come in on Easter Sunday and say that I got it right. I want to come in on Easter Sunday and say I'm really willing to get it right. And I'm willing, Father God, for you to do whatever you need to do for however long you need to do it to help me get it right. I don't wanna, it's not a magic shot. If you fast for 40 days and write it down on a card, it's going to get right. It might for some, it might not for others, but I want you to have a healthy view of the tears that God wants to pluck out of our lives. Heavenly Father, I pray that this season that we're entering here is a turning point for us as a church where we're learning how to have scandalous mercy and scandalous hope for people. We hope that when it's all said and done that you will win every single soul over to the Father. That's what our hope is. But while we're living here, Holy Spirit, we want to live in a way where we can say to the world what you're about to say to us, this is my body given for you. This is my home open for you. This is my money spent on you. This is my time lent to you. So help us to become aware of what is in our life that is keeping us from living an offered life. Give us the grace to stand, not in the middle, but to stand in fullness over moralism, and relativism to be able to have the discernment the to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves on how to navigate strict legalistic toxicity and also relativistic duplicitous thinking teach us how to be the kind of church that can enter both of those situations and not offend not shut off people's ability to hear but also not get involved in it ourselves. We need to be led and guided by you, Holy Spirit. And so I pray right now that we would all remember the night when you were betrayed, the night when relativism and legalism converged on you on the same night and you offered yourself to both of it, but you stayed where you were supposed to stay when they said to you, we'll believe in you if you come down. You didn't violate your stance as the Son of God, but you stayed on the cross. How painful that must have been, knowing that your own children were saying, fine, we'll talk to you if you can just come down. And you didn't. I want Salem, Father God, to have that kind of rebellion, to stay in the cruciform life. I want us to say, I've determined to know nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. Help us iron this out over the years. Because on the night when you were betrayed, you looked at that betrayal and you said, this bread is my body and this blood is my cup and it's offered for you. You won't take me from the path that I'm on, but you're invited to come on it with me. And so Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would fall on these elements and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would fall on us also and make us the kinds of people who are incarnated by your Holy Spirit to be for the world what you are for us in this moment. In your holy, precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.